0: So I will, I will be brief. We have eight minutes. And I first want to s- thank uh, Wayne and Kathy for their hospitality. Um, p- partly for me, it's not just a chance of, sp- of spending time with all of you, but it's also the chance of meeting the young people who give us hope. And I leave this job, leave this time uh, with you all, with a little bit more s- uh, spring in my step with the idea that we have young ones who will take us going forward, and they're an inspiration to me in the work I do. Uh, Wayne asked me to talk to you a little bit about our work on... Uh, the surveillance issue and in particular on the case of Edward Snowden uh, who is our client. He's my client. I've spent now um, with a span of almost two weeks with him in various trips to Moscow. I speak to him on an encrypted chat called Tor. Uh, We have a robot where he kind of beams in on a robot and it's really quite uh, 21st century where he actually moves around the office on this robot that he operates from Moscow. Um, I was sitting in my office uh, right, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago when I was sitting with my ERISA council and my labor council and my general council, and we were talking about the divine benefit plan. And the ERISA council, who has never had a pulse since the day he was born, uh, looked very green all of a sudden. And I said, Bob, are you okay? And then he points to the robot, and he sees his robot moving, and it's Edward Snowden's face on it. I'm like, oh, Ed, please meet Bob, Bob, meet Ed. And I thought Bob was going to go flatline on me. Um, <laughs> So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about why it is that we represent Ed Snowden. Now over the years, 96 years the ACLU has been in existence, we've had a number of clients that we've represented that are not terribly popular. They're individuals that we have come to their defense because the principles involved are critically important. Uh, The ones you probably know best are the the neo-Nazis marching in uh, Skokie, Illinois, or the Klan marching in the south, Um, even uh, cases like... Uh, The case of Ernesto Miranda, where we have the right to remain silent, that came out of his case, was our client. And he was not a terribly nice man. He was a man who was charged and arrested for the murder and rape of a 15-year-old girl. Uh, Today, we represent individuals like Mr. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, the mastermind of 9-11 attacks in the Guantanamo Military Commissions, partly because of the due process issues and because of the fact that he was tortured by our government and sanctioned at the highest levels. Um, And so there are clients that we don't really like, that the principles are really important for us to defend. Then there are wonderful clients that we love uh, over the years. Uh, John Scopes, who wanted to teach evolution in public science classrooms. Uh, Clarence Darrow was our lawyer representing him. Uh, Fred Korematsu, the Japanese-American who was interned. Justice Kennedy and I were talking about his own history on Japanese-American internment. Uh, Mildred Loving, the wonderful woman who wanted to marry her white husband and was banned from doing so because of um, misogyny laws in the South. Uh, Edie Windsor was our recent case before the court, an 82-year-old woman who was widowed and not recognized in her marriage uh, because she was married to a woman. Uh, She was married to Thea, not Theo, as she said. So Snowden, for me, falls in that category of both having the principles being critically important but I actually happen to think that the individual, the icon, the person, is much more uh, sympathetic, from my point of view. I put him in the category of um, of representing scopes rather than representing uh, the clan. And let me explain to you why. I think there are things that Edwards Snowden has done for this country that he clearly broke the law. Uh, he understands that. He understood that. He understood the gravamen of that when he made the decision to steal the documents from the U.S. government. Uh, He is someone who should pay the price for breaking the law. He's open to discussions with the U.S. government on that. He has certainly compromised our national interests. Um, There are are fissures now between the U.S. government and other countries, especially in Europe, where we're, uh, we're challenged by it. I happen to believe that he has not, however, jeopardized national security, and there's a difference between uh, jeopardizing national interests and national security, that you have the right to embarrass your government when you think it's wrong, but you don't have the right to steal sources, methods, intelligence information when you think the government is wrong. And so I want to break down for you some of the reasons why I think he's done us more service than harm. Uh, first, we all talk, and there are certain myths I just want to debunk really quickly in the last three minutes. Uh, the number one myth is we love the debate, but we, uh, we condemn the whistleblower. Well, this debate would never have happened but for the, the revelations of Edward Snowden. We have tried for many years to grapple with this issue. We came before the court on a case uh, just decided the last Academy meeting in Washington. Where we were bounced out of court because we couldn't prove that we had standing to challenge the NSA surveillance programs. We could not prove that our clients were subjected to the surveillance that Ed Snowden later on released. And frankly, we would not have this debate that President Obama, Congress, the courts now embrace but for the revelations of this young man. Um, We often hear that we have no privacy interest in metadata, that metadata is not protected by the Constitution. So I want to give you an example. Metadata today is very different than metadata when it was in the 70s. And so take a hypothetical. I'm a gay guy. You you may know that. I dress well. Uh, uh, (laughs) And if you just knew my metadata saying, Anthony Romero gets a phone call from the gay men's health crisis that lasts two minutes. Anthony Romero then calls his physician, Dr. Laura Fisher, and speaks for one minute. Anthony Romero calls his sister and speaks with her for an hour and then Anthony Romero calls his boyfriend and speaks to him for five minutes, right? That's all you would know from metadata. Now from that metadata you would pretty much know that the content of my communication has to do possibly, probably, most likely with an HIV uh, diagnosis. And so the idea that we have no privacy interest in just connecting the dots of metadata is really quite not true in the, in the 21st century, when you can connect every dot of every action, every phone call, and have a thorough view of the person's actions over a period of time. Myth number two, that the Constitution is not implicated until you search the database. I use the example of, uh, the, of the government coming into your homes, let's say. So right now the government <coughs> sees all of your emails, records of your phone calls, and they say, until we search. the the database, the Fourth Amendment's not implicated. The Fourth Amendment protects us against unreasonable searches and seizures. But imagine if the government came into all of your homes and took all of those boxes you have in your basement, where I have my taxes, my correspondence, my mother's pictures, and took them for all of you, and said, we're just going to hold on to this, and we'll let you know when we search it. Would we feel that that would be a privacy infringement, a privacy violation? We happen to believe that the Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable seizures as well as searches. Third, that Edward Snowden is not a whistleblower. That he is someone who could have gone uh, through the ranks of government and raised these concerns without the uh, extreme actions he took in stealing the documents beforehand. And the fact is that Ed Snowden did try to raise these concerns within the government. There are a number of emails, some of which have been released, some of which will soon be released, that show that he went up the chain of command at the NSA. Uh, he's also someone who watched the, uh, the, the proceedings in court on our litigation. He was watching very closely the Clapper case when we were told that we didn't have standing for it. His first document that was released was a document that solved our standing problem. And the first thing he said to me in Moscow when I met him was, now you have standing, don't you? I said, yes, I do. Uh, he's also someone who understood that our government officials lied to the American people. And so I just want to read you this one quick uh, quote from a, a colloquy between Senator Wyden and, G- and Keith Alexander. So uh, Senator Wyden asked uh, Keith Alexander, the head of the NSA, at the U.S. Ed- Select Committee on Intelligence, he asked him, does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? Uh, Mr. Uh, Clapper, under oath, said, no, sir. Wyden, who knew better, then answered, it does not. And Clapper said, not wittingly. There are cases where they could inadvertently perhaps collect, but not wittingly. So when Ed Soden talks about being an NSA operative, watching his boss lie under oath and perjure himself, that that was the moment of Saul on the road to Damascus. That's when he said, I've got to do something about it. Now we might argue whether or not he did the right thing or the wrong thing, but there is something there to say that when an individual watches his own boss, a government official, lie under oath that that raises enormous questions. He should have stayed home and faced the music, myth number four. He would have spent the rest of his life in jail. There is no affirmative defense that we could put forward in his case that would mitigate his prison sentence. We have the case, and Prime Minister Barack will know this one, about Jonathan J. Pollard is probably the best example of what also, someone who also stole information from the US government, gave it to the Israelis, and is serving a life sentence in jail because of it. And finally, that he had no other, if he was really clean of any motive, he would not have gone to Russia. And that why is he sitting in Putin's Russia today? Well, the fact is that he had no other place to go. Russia's the only country that would give him self-haven at the moment. Um, Russia obviously has its own interests in, in p- providing haven to a man who uh, is poking the finger at the U.S. government. Uh, coming home means spending the ri- rest of his life in jail. If he comes home and gets arrested, he'll be sealed off from the public and the press under special administrative measures where he won't speak to members of the public or even members of his family. And, and frankly, I think it's a, it's a very different scenario to ask a young man of 31 years old to spend the rest of his life in communicado for a debate which we all now relish and applaud. Um, In my private conversations, I'm not sure, I'll wrap up, now I'm done. Um, With him, I try to get, he's 31, he's young, uh, he's very idealistic. Um, I try to give him the benefit of history. He doesn't really know our history all that well. He's a high school dropout, if you will. Um, So I've been talking to him about Harriet Tubman to understand the importance of Harriet Tubman. And when you go back and you read some of the early history of Harriet Tubman and the abolitionists, you know, Harriet Tubman broke many laws. And she was also called by a messianic calling. She actually spoke about the fact that God spoke to her and told her that the laws would have to be uh, broken if you want to see justice in America. Now, I'm not saying that he is a Harriet Tubman, but I think that sometimes we may not recognize individuals who speak with their own conscience and their own morality and their own ethics that later on in history might be vindicated in ways we don't understand today. So thank you and, yeah, of course.